Really? I thought that was really good. Was it? See, I don't know. I thought that conversation was really good, to be honest. It's really smart. I think it's great, Brian. I couldn't disagree with you more once again. <laughs> don't say iterative. I hate when people say that. People versus Algorithms is a podcast dedicated to detecting patterns in media, business, and culture. I'm Brian Marcy, and each week I'm joined by Troy Young, writer of the People versus Algorithms newsletter, and a longtime media executive who was most recently president of Hearst Magazines, where he led the transformation of that company. I've known Troy for over a decade, probably 15 years, and I can definitely say he's one of the best thinkers about the media business out there. We're also going to be joined by Alex Schleifer, who is our creative partner on this project, and he runs Universal Entities. Thank you to everyone for your feedback on the first couple episodes. As I said, this is an iterative process, so we'll get better, hopefully. Thank you in particular to Chris Brinkworth, who uh, took to the last good social platform, which is, of course, LinkedIn, to share this podcast along with a nice note that said, and I quote, if this episode was a sample of what's to come, then I suggest all of you follow Brian Morrissey and Troy Young's new podcast, People vs. Algorithms. Thank you, Chris, particularly for putting my name first. This week, we're going to talk about media and culture. Media is always reflected in driven culture. And last week, we discussed the atomization of media, and I think it's worth digging into the cultural effects of that. One thing that caught my eye this week that I wanted to start with was that Bustle shut down its tech culture brand, Input, and then also gutted Mike, which which used to be about millennial politics, but it revamped itself as a, a pop culture brand. And... I, you know, these things follow the, the demise of Mel, you know, which, which took a bullet from Recurrent in uh, July. And I think all of these brands, when, they, when these things happen, they have their fans, you know, who will miss them and uh, their differentiation and a sea of sameness. But at the same time, I think pop culture brands themselves are really difficult to pull off these days. And I want to dig into why and then spin it forward as to what's going to replace these institutional brands. Is it going to be creators? What is it going to be? So, Troy, I want to bring you in and uh, ask you for your take. I mean, you've you've been in the you know the magazines themselves used to be you know the the heart of like cultural uh, pop culture brands in some ways. What's the fate of these brands because they feel like caught in between right now? I admire Brian, and Brian is has a you know real commitment to an ad driven business model, as you know, and he's done extremely well there. I suspect that Brian is looking. This is for Brian Goldberg, or is this me? Not you, definitely. <laughs> Brian Goldberg. I, know, I was like, you admire me. I do admire you. you. Know that? That's why I'm here. But the Brian Goldberg, he he has to find the next chapter for his business, right? And he's really committed to you know his brand rehabilitation. You know, he's done a great job creating his own brands. They're largely ad driven. Some of them are moderately diversified to affiliate. But basically, the ad kind of economy slowdown in the last bit is putting pressure on his margins. And, you know, in some circumstances, you navigate that and it's fine. But right now, Brian needs to figure out how to keep the right P&L story for the market because he needs to figure out how to sell the company at some point. 
So faced with some revenue pressure, he's saying, where can I cut costs? Input Magazine, it's not bad, actually. There's some great things about it, but I think that it doesn't have a natural and, and resilient ad category, as you pointed out. Mm-hmm. And it likely doesn't have the kind of affiliate ballast that some other publications do in home goods, in financial services, et cetera. And it certainly doesn't have subscription. So you're, you're looking at it and you're saying, how do I make it more lean? I think Mike is like that, but even worse because it, to me, I don't understand Mike's purpose post, you know, it's brief moment of glory. And so I think that these culture brands, they're not aligned to, you know, spendy vertical categories or deep connection to communities or subscription business or affiliate businesses, you know, they're going to, they're going to struggle a bit. Lots of them. I think that I'd put BuzzFeed in that category. The pressure would seem like this is a classic case of getting caught in between. And so I don't think the demand for, I mean, yeah, you're right. These are somewhat different like brands and like a lot of them were very search oriented, but. All of them are search oriented. Yeah. But the pressure is category wide. So I'm just wondering like what ends up replacing these brands? Is it just because like how much well, leaner can you get? Well, I don't think they're particularly lean. They have extremely expensive sales structures and they have technologists and product people, content management systems and all that. And they have a high cost of sale because they make content for premium advertisers. So they're expensive business models. I think that it is category wide in that the actions where, you know, is, is kind of in the creator influencer space and those companies or those individuals carry a lot of audience against a very lean cost structure inside of platforms that are very seductive to advertisers. So they'll be replaced by TikTok accounts, basically. Well, I think so. I think a lot of the brands that were sort of spawned by the print era or ones that came after that are the front end for talent or are meant to be kind of a new breed media brands, but really cast in an old style. I think they have a hard time and many of them become a kind of hollowed out vessel for affiliate and licensing. And some of them become ad studios of sorts, vertical ad studios and maybe even others become production companies like they make like it you know you saw that you i think you mentioned it brian that thing from the atlantic but you know they try to move into new video production revenue streams but you know the core business of running website and social account against a direct sales team and some programmatic is i think that business just gets harder no i think what you say makes a ton of sense i guess what i want to get at is like what that future model looks like right because i think everyone who's dealing with legacy cost structures whenever there's a shift in the environment is going to be disadvantaged right because you have the legacy cost structures that's magazine brands were disadvantaged in you know the the shift to the internet because They had all of this print machinery and stuff like this. It seems like even if you don't have the print machinery, which, you know, Brian Goldberg does not have the print machinery. But the much bigger question to your point is, what's the future model look like? You know, I was at Overtime yesterday and, you know, they have, you know, they basically don't have a website and they, um, you know, they 
they've got really, really strong kind of social game, but they created a league. They're creating leagues. They've created a stadium in Atlanta and they're trying to figure out how that leads to a kind of more permanent distribution relationship where their shows, you know, form part of a modern OTT service or modern bundle. Yeah. I think overtime is actually a really interesting business. I don't know if they'll be able to make it work, but you know, they had a very core insight that a lot of people were showing up before Zion Williamson's high school games to watch him dunk. And they all had phones out and they were taking videos of it. They're trying to create a new category of sports entertainment and own the league. It's very cool. So it started as dunk highlights of like high school kids who were going to become like NBA stars. And they became their own like characters basically through overtime. And they didn't have to worry about rights or anything like this because it was just people showing up at a high school gym. The high schools actually ended up being like, whoa, you're going to have to cut us in on this because (laughs) we want some, we want, we want to have our hands out. And now they're, they're building it into like leagues and they're getting in, involved in and the they're NIL. underwriting players in other cases. They're like talent management, they're leagues, they have a facility. What they don't have is what something like the NFL has, which is the kind of, you know, stable monetization of a broadcast partner. Alex, we were trading text messages and you had a really interesting point about the long tail becoming the mid tail because I think it, it relates to this in some ways in that you need to either go really big like overtime is doing or stay super niche, it seems like. Yeah, I tweeted about it too. I, you know, Hi, Alex. Hello. Can you hear me? Yes. First time caller. Have you noticed that today it's so common to hear about some huge media thing that you had no idea about the second before? And it's not because you're old, but it's because the universe of culture is so vast and diverse that it's just not possible to keep track of everything. So, you know, it used to be Oh, I'm not on TikTok, so I don't know TikTok-y things, right? And used to be traditional versus digital media. But now, even in TikTok, and people are very heavily connected and on TikTok, there's entire universes of media that they never touch, communities that they never see. And so I think, you know, we used to define media into what was long tail and what was mainstream for decades. So there's this big, fat mainstream and then a long tail of weird niche subcultures. But I think that it's no longer relevant because the distribution has become so varied and access to media has become so varied that the long tail is just now one thick tail all across where everything is mixed together. And it's no longer talking about TV versus streaming, but now we're talking about streaming versus YouTube versus Twitch versus TikTok. And within each of those, there's millions of communities It's kind of like these bubbles that you don't see. I notice them in real life too, Alex. Every day you can find something that's huge that you had not even a sense about. You haven't heard about it. I think some of that is age though. No, you talk to kids. Really? It's incredible. The life cycle is also so short. So new things become huge very quickly and disappear very quickly, leaving room for other things that I think we're all experiencing very specific different bubbles of cultures that are fed you know, via algorithms and different distribution. And I mean, people, kids still watch Game of Thrones, but they watch it while watching their favorite streamer talk about it in real time and, you know, making TikToks of it. It's, it's just, you know, just the long tail is dead. Everything is everything all at once. I sat in front of my computer this morning and tried to write something about that. And I did a really lousy job. And I think I called it personal worlds. 
because I fall into them sometimes. Sometimes they're media-based. Sometimes they're a community of people and the things that they do in the real world. They're connected somehow. And suddenly this kind of new landscape opens up. I get it from one of my kids. I think it's partly generational to Brian's point, but mm -hmm. I think you're so right, Alex, that it's really not about like mass culture and like super niche, but it's about kind of pockets of interest or communities of interest that, that sometimes touch, sometimes don't. So what is the long-term impact of that? That's what I'm sort of interested in. Can it continue? Or maybe it's always been that way. We've always been in these little bubbles, but it feels like we're more so than we've ever been. But I think capital is going to be less concentrated in specific pockets, right? I don't know. I think it's more and more values-based, to be honest with you. Did you see that essay going around this week called Life After Lifestyle? No. Makes you want to poke your eyes out. Sounds right on. I mean, most people who say that they have communities have audiences, right? If that. Do we have a community? No. Alex is our community. So rich people are hard to reach now. This is sad. And they live in their own little bubbles. If that's your takeaway, Brian, I know you're always <laughs> bitter about the rich thing. <laughs> okay, I feel bad for the advertisers who need to find the rich people because the rich people now have like their own closed communities. Yeah, you just don't see it. Yeah. We have gated media communities. Gated life communities. Look at the clubs in Manhattan. There's like this kind of fresh new wave of private clubs. And once you walk in, you're like, what? This exists? Like, you know, it happens at places like, you know, Casa Cipriani or like... Oh, yeah, I was there the other day. Yeah. And you're like, all these people had this kind of knowledge about this amazing place that I never knew existed. It's weird. I don't really totally understand the sort of rise of all of the sort of private clubs in New York. Yeah, I remember like Soho House when I came here, it was a thing. But now there's just like, there's so many permutations of it. I thought it was like driven by like work from home stuff, but I don't know. Maybe not. But just to bring it back down to yeah. media, when the Netflix tier comes out at four bucks or five bucks or eight bucks cheaper to watch advertising, are you going to do that? No, of course not. No, no, I wouldn't. I mean, I think one of the, I do think that it's like good and bad or whatever. Like I think avoiding disruptive advertising is, it is like, you know, a nice small scale luxury, you know, but I think that's going to become increasingly more difficult, right? Like, I mean, one of my former colleagues went to work for like cooler screens. Do you know cooler screens? They're the people that are turning the, the like frozen food doors aisle doors into video ads. Mm -hmm. So like the problem they're solving, I guess, is that they, when you would look into the frozen food aisle doors, you couldn't see what was inside. So they turned them into screens that also now have are an advertising surface area, as you would like to say. I've decided I say that too much now. I'm gonna get rid <laughs> okay, of it. so you're going you're gonna to stop that. But I think if you can, you avoid advertising. It's just going to become increasingly more difficult. Should we talk about search, Brian? Should we do the search one? Oh, definitely. What do you, what do you think? 
Okay. Yes. Yeah, I've seen Google search ads over the years and stuff, but like th they've had a lot more of them around and I had seen this on Twitter. So I went to search for it, of course, on Google and I couldn't find it. And I think that's the problem, right? Like Google search has been the one home run of the internet. Like it's the game changer. Like in the long run, Facebook is, is in terminal decline. Like we'll just look back at this as a blip. But search has been the foundational element of the commercial internet. Like, and it's remarkable, like what it has done. And I think one of the things I've just noticed over the years is that we always think that things are permanent, right? And it's like, no, 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 this time it's permanent, right? But there, nothing is permanent. And what I wonder is whether Google search is threatened finally. By DuckDuckGo? Not by DuckDuckGo. I don't think privacy is, is the way. Yeah, that's not people... how it changes. It changes in ways that you don't expect. And um, like... <laughs> And the reason Google search is to me on the decline is, is just because it's too successful. Everyone is trying to get to the top of the search results pages. Like SEO is, has not gone anywhere and it's really almost unusable, particularly with. Yeah, but going. I don't think they're going to be displaced on the open web. The Google, the Google, the Google is the spinal cord of the open web. Yeah, but the open and, web uh, is in terminal decline too. Yeah, they also locked up contracts with Apple to preserve the entry points through Chrome and Safari and the iPhone. So they, I was talking to Jim Lanzone about this the other night, and he, who's the CEO of Yahoo. And he has spent a long time thinking about how to take share and search through, what was this? He did that thing. Ask Jeeves. Ask Jeeves. And now they have search at Yahoo. And so I think that it's almost impenetrable, even though the experience has become less desirable. But as you're about to point out, I think that when new, give me a new word for surface areas appear, like TikTok, those become an opportunity for new types of search. Yeah, search is changing quite a bit. You know, the fact that people have to hack search by adding Reddit to search threads says that there's a problem with their core product. I mean, Google has an update that they pushed out a few weeks ago, which is one of their more notable updates. And they're trying to like clean up the search results yet again, because there's too many people trying to game search because it's very lucrative to game the search engine. If you rank high, like you make money while you sleep. It's great. Trust me. Trust me, yes. You've spent time doing that, right? The problem is like it forces people to look for alternatives. And I think we're seeing that search is not as strong as it used to be, but maybe I'm wrong. Well, there was some speculation that Apple could hijack it, although I don't think they will. And I think that you got to look at the terms of their deal with Google. I think it extends out many, many more years. And you're um, talking all this corporate machinations and stuff like this. This is a mean? culture episode and stuff. It meaning that like when the millennials like were growing up, like we didn't have search engines growing up, but like, you know, they just assume Google it, you Google it and stuff like this. Like, I don't know if Gen Z, like at some point the yellow pages died. Why can't search also just not be as important to a new generation? Because it's how you find shit on the web, dude. Maybe they're not finding shit on the web. <laughs> because it's an ATM and, you know, they can modify it pretty easily and the cost structure relative to the revenue is really low. I think when new media types and environments like TikTok emerge, it's reasonable that they could own search inside of that environment and they'll try to. But 
The other side of it is that Google controls search on the rest of video on the internet through YouTube. So they have YouTube search, their index does really well with YouTube. But if if somebody wants to find somebody talking about something on, on TikTok, then the TikTok search engine is a good answer. The bigger problem with TikTok is that someone's got to buy it. Someone with tons and tons of cash or something, because you cannot have a Chinese-owned social media slash entertainment platform that dominates the environment in America. You cannot. Yeah. I agree with that. I mean, it's like, I think a lot of times people are a little bit naive about this. And it's, the problem is it's like- It's just a matter of time till it becomes a hot potato issue. Like it's going to happen. Well, one of the problems is because Trump did it, right? And so Trump will say a thousand crazy things and like 998 will be truly crazy, but like two will be like, hmm. Kind of got a point. And I feel like this is one of them. Like the idea of banning TikTok is going to move from- Are you wearing a tw Trump 2024 shirt? No, I'm not. I mean, I lived in Florida for two and a half years, but I'm not even Trump curious. Trust me, I'm back in New York, <laughs> man. This place is it's not hospitable to that stuff. I think the, the topic of banning TikTok is going to be very mainstream. Why in the world would the United States, with the Chinese government being at best the biggest competitor, they're the biggest competitor to the United States out there, what country would allow their main media and entertainment to be controlled by another country? Europe. What? Well, I mean, America controls that all around the world. Yeah, but like we're like allies. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. It's going to happen. Yeah, the search thing will be interesting to watch. I predict that Google's going to be fine. YouTube, search, all the utilities that they provide that are largely ad-supported, they're going to be fine for a long, long time. And I think Apple's going to be fine too. And Amazon. But I think that Facebook is kind of fucked. Terminal decline. Terminal decline. Alex, you talked about the metaverse being their like Hail Mary play. Well, they got burned on mobile and they don't want to live in a world where they don't control any of the distribution. So you ask a futurist and they say, the next step is our eyeballs. So they thought they could do that. Unfortunately, they're lacking all the skills required to be creative, invent new things, be great at hardware. And all their competitors have a decade-long lead, like Microsoft buying all the game studios, or Apple making AR hardware that a billion people use already. So they're fucked. So you think like Microsoft is far better positioned? A hundred percent. Microsoft has the software in the world. I mean, they own Minecraft. They own some of the biggest studios in the world. They have a massive cloud business that can support it. They have a huge install base of game consoles and also a streaming service. They have a huge lead on them, a huge lead. Microsoft is already a metaverse company. Plus the thing underneath of it, I think you made the point is that they own the office platform and it is a cash gusher. Right, exactly. They can invest in those things reliably while still generating revenue the same way Apple can. And they're going to crush Facebook, both of them. And the same way Google can. Although I would say Google isn't structured in a way that allows them to innovate or invest enough time and patience into these things. Microsoft has been doing this for decades. Google tried to get into gaming, it didn't work and they just shut it down. Because I think at some point at Google, there's a board meeting where they go, wait, is this thing making trillions of dollars yet? And somebody goes, no, not yet. And they go like, well, why are we paying attention to it? And they turn it off. Yeah, I mean, it's just, I'm just saying that they own the web starting point, which isn't going anywhere. They own the video starting point, they own Android, and they own our email boxes. Yeah. 
That's true. All right, let's get on to good product. It's oh, time for good Oh, my favorite segment, good product. I'm going to perk up here, Brian. Good. It's time, Troy. All right, so just to set the scene, yesterday we were at breakfast and you made a very particular order about a bagel, sesame seeds on both sides. I think it was very particular. We got to talking about bagels and you were extolling the best bagels, as one does in New York. It's all about the bagels. Right. Well, the first thing I'll say is anytime I bring this up in New York, pe people lash out at me yeah, and they're sensitive. they're sensitive about it and they think that I'm insane, but they're wrong and they have not eaten bagels far enough from their own local shop. The truth is I don't mind a New York bagel, although they're too doughy, they're too big and they're just not nearly as good as good product of the week the Montreal bagel and the purveyor of Montreal bagels there's two of them that really matter there's one called Fairmount bagel the bagels are boiled and then cooked in a wood oven they're smaller than than the New York bagel they're covered in sesame seeds or uh, poppy seeds they do make an extraordinary cinnamon raisin they're a little harder. The UI is a little bit more difficult on these bagels because they have a big hole in the middle, which means when you're smearing cream cheese or jam or whatever you like to put on them, sometimes you make a mess. But they're just so perfect and so good. And you can, I think you can get them delivered. We have friends from Montreal that come down and bring them to us. We freeze them. They're extraordinary. Montreal bagels all the way. Mm. I think the best bagel is on the Upper West Side at Absolute Bagels. It's a very interesting story because I, I started going there when I went to Columbia and it's a very nondescript store, but it's run by Thai people. They like moved to New York and really fell in love with the bagel and they actually are making them in a very traditional way. But the end result, to me, it's different. It's less dense because you're trying to get like that hard exterior, but you want the soft interior. It's pretty much all cooking as far as I know and I think they've nailed it and well I would like to try those and I take what you're saying very seriously <laughs> you had to go to like 102nd street though Troy, that's pretty far, far uptown. and I while I take what you're saying seriously I just don't <laughs> think that they compete with the Montreal bagel the standard it's a vegetable cream cheese with or salmon? like egg no, no no I don't do salmon I don't eat fish what? in the morning I'm not gonna eat fish in the morning that's salmon like... onion capers cream cheese slice of tomato God's gift to the bagel, right there. Gross. I absolutely <laughs> agree with Troy. No. I, yeah, I, how do people eat fish in the morning? It's just strange. How do you eat pork in the morning? What about the Izod? It's not Izod, it's Lacoste. I have a deep, deep affection for Lacoste shirts. It's my go-to uniform. I have it in every color of the rainbow. They issue new colors. See, they fit a, you know, a chunkier aging man well. They breathe. And I can't say uh, they're a good price point. They're a very good price point. And there's something vaguely French about it, which means it's got a kind of nostalgic bite. And, but it's an um, 80s brand. I mean, that's the thing, right? Like they're back in style because like the 80s preppy look is back in style. I never stopped doing 80s preppy. I love it. Well, that's a good thing when you don't like follow trends, like eventually it'll come around to you. It'll just take a little time. 
Yeah, I like 80s uh, style mixed with what I would call man-child. Is that why you wear the flat-brimmed, like, I like that look. I don't like the tight cap with the curve. No, that's not me. I don't think adult men should wear baseball hats, no offense, Alex. What about baseball players or chirkers? Oh, yeah, that's fine. I mean, if it's for, or fishers, fishermen, whatever, like if you're out like on a boat or something, or if it has like a- Yeah, I live on a farm. I need something to shield my eyes from the sun. Okay, so if it has like an actual purpose, but- Sure. But Alex is sort of like a techno peasant. You know, he likes the mix, right? He likes milking the goats and setting up the tech. You know, you need balance. I think we should do a segment like the song of the week. What's your song of the week? Gregory Isaac has the sweetest, most soulful reggae voice of all time. And I love, I love the album Night Nurse. And the Brits love it. You'll, you'll be in the UK, you'll be in London and you'll hear it in like coffee shops and stuff. And there's a song, which is my song of the week is Mr. Cop by Gregory Isaac. Check it out, everyone. Uh, Mailbag. Mail fucking bag. Okay, my whole email this week, shout out to my email, was mailbag. Because Mark Kingdon, who you know, Brian, really smart guy, sent me like long-winded note about my email. He also gave me the old punch kiss. And then we had this great conversation. So I wrote the email this week because of Mark. Thank you. All right. You got yeah, an we- email? You get, did you get any mail this week, Brian? I was very encouraged to see that Alex somehow got a note from someone who he knew that listened to the podcast. Yeah, uh, I didn't even have to tell them about it. This is more substantive. Listen to both episodes back to back yesterday on a drive. That's promising. Thank you. There for was that. a dramatic improvement between the two. The second had far clearer intros and context to each story. The first felt a bit like when you go to the loo and come back to find your friends talking about something different. So there's that. (laughs) All right. Well, I'll take that as a productive... uh, That's a nice note. We knew the first one kind of was all over the place. Even the second one was this one... It's going to... It takes a bit of time. Don't say iterative. I hate when people say that. We're just going to make it better. Yeah, isn't that what it means? I don't know why we're not talking about poached chicken. Poached in NyQuil. The NyQuil chicken? Yeah. That's bad product of the week. I think it probably doesn't taste good, but it sounds like it'll put you to sleep, which is nice. Thanks for listening. Thank you to Jay Sparks, producer of this episode. As a reminder, please send your feedback. We can feature it in the mailbag segment. You can email me at bmorrissey at gmail.com. 